to Eccentric Earth, the podcast where I, your host Amy Walker, delve into stories from across history with a guest who has no idea what the topic's going to be. This week is a bit of a special episode though, because this is actually our one year anniversary. So I'm trying something a bit different. I've got in more than one guest. The plan was for three guests, but Chris Haig had to bail. So, but joining me tonight is Han and Addie. Hello. Hi. I like the fact that you shamed him, you shamed him by name, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I well, made a course. song where he said cunt like 30 times. Giving out his name is nothing at this point. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, thank you for, for coming on the show. I didn't know Chris knew that word. Oh, yes. Hey, Ninja. That that wasn't hand making that sound? <laughs> no, that was no, a <laughs> I don't know. I don't have one of those. I'm pretty sure that you've, uh, you know, experienced heard a cat. one though. I've, I've, I've heard cats. That that was not a sound I recognized, though. <laughs> oh yeah, true. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's the ninja beep. That was not a meow. That was more like. <laughs> I, it was like a a cat loading. Yeah, it's a cat. It's a cat reverse. Beep beep beep. <laughs> Two minutes and it's already descended into chaos. Well. No, were you expecting anything? Anything else? Amy? No. Also, you count this as chaos. That's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I knew getting multiple guests into one episode is asking for trouble. And oh no, you no, guys no, no. that was not your mistake. Yeah, yes, not, that not, was your mistake. Yeah, it's it's me, it's me and Adi that's the that's the issue. <laughs> Yeah, it's not the fact that you had multiple guests. It's <laughs> the fact that you have specific guests. It's like it's basically like inviting two trickster gods on at the same time. We are Congrats. greater than some of our parts. You got and we Peeves and Loki. Well, I think the topic I've picked might not be the best one then, because, oh, there's so much for you to take the piss out of and interfere with. Well, it is my pleasure to do so. Yep. Let's see if we can make this a two-parter. Ooh, challenge accepted. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or BritpodScene on Twitter to find out more. Lafayette Hubbard was born on March 13th 1911, in Tilden, Nebraska. He was the only child of Ladora and Harry Hubbard. In 1917, Lafayette's father rejoined the Navy to serve in World War I. Following the war during the 1920s, the Hubbards repeatedly relocated around the United States, including San Diego and Seattle. During this period, Lafayette was an active Boy Scout and earned the rank of Eagle Scout in 1924, just two weeks after his 13th birthday. 
Mazel Tov? Yeah, are we meant to applaud that? Is that a, is that a, is that a, I don't know. I don't it know. It might be impressive, so How? it was included. <laughs> it's like, congrats, you're a man now. Or it's an eagle. Con- yeah, it's congrats in a, in a very uh, American way. In 1927, Lafayette's father was sent to the US naval station in Guam. Ladora accompanied her husband while Lafayette was placed in his grandparents' care in Helena in Montana to complete his schooling. That same year, before school began, Lafayette and his mother travelled to Guam so that he could visit his father. The trip consisted of a brief stopover in a number of Chinese ports before travelling on to Guam, where he stayed for six weeks before returning home. He recorded his impressions of the places he visited and disdained the poverty of the inhabitants of Japan and China, who he described as gooks and lazy and ignorant. Oh, hooray! (laughs) Well, suck it up, snowflake. (laughs) I think it's important that you guys understand early on, this this is not the hero of the story. (laughs) Oh, I figured that one out pretty fast. Hang on a minute, Amy. Hang on a minute, it depends what side you're on surely i'm sure some people regard this person as a hero (laughs) after his return to the united states in september lafayette enrolled in helena high school where he contributed to the school paper yet achieved poor grades i wonder why he abandoned school the following may and went back west to stay with his aunt and uncle in seattle he eventually joined his parents in guam in june 1928 His mother took over his education in the hope of putting him forward for the entrance exam to the United States Naval Academy. Back in Guam, Lafayette spent much of his time writing dozens of short stories and essays and failed the Naval Academy entrance exam. Well, I mean, it's not really a surprise. Yeah, he he has no interest in the Navy. It's this is what his parents are after. Plus, did like fail high school. You can't fail if you quit. I'm pretty sure quitting inherently means failing. No. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm with the D on this side. On like, this, if you on, quit, yeah, there is like, no option for you, success. Yeah, you haven't you're passed a, by quitting. Your immediate, your only immediate option upon quitting is literally failing. In September 1929, Lafayette was enrolled at the Swaverly Preparatory School in Manassas, Virginia to prepare him for a second attempt at the entrance examination. However, he was ruled out of consideration due to his nearsightedness, finally putting an end to any prospect of a naval career. He was instead sent to Woodward School for Boys in Washington, D.C. to qualify for admission to George Washington University. I'm sorry, is there a reason that the school for boys is called Woodward? (laughs) Is that supposed to indicate something? I think you might have answered your own question. Yeah, It's a school for making Packers. If anyone doesn't know what a Packer is, please Google it. He successfully graduated from school in June 1930, sorry, and entered the university the following September. He studied civil engineering during his two years at, Washington, at George Washington University at the behest of his father. Well, daddy knows best. During his final semester, he organized an expedition to the Caribbean for, quote, 50 young gentlemen rovers. I'm sorry, what? He organized an expedition for 50 young gentlemen rovers. 
This was to be aboard a schooner starting in June 1932 called the Caribbean Motion Picture Expedition. Whoa, 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 whoa. So is he, like, just 80 years ahead of his time of being, like, I'm just out of college, I'm trying to find myself, I think I'm just going to, like, go somewhere with a camera and make a documentary about the real people there? No. Yeah, I guess he was a little ahead of his time. was. I think I'm thinking of... um, Coney 2012 guys. He claimed the aims of the expedition were to explore and film the pirate strongholds and bouvicants of the Spanish main, and to collect whatever one collects for exhibitions in museums. <laughs> so steal artifacts. Well, he doesn't so, even know, he doesn't even know artifacts. It's just collect whatever you collect. <laughs> yeah, what are you getting? Stuff and things. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> I wonder if he'll visit a museum before going just to get an idea of what to Nick, but I, I get the he sense just that he gonna, wouldn't. He, he's no. just gonna take, like, the tiny signs that say what he's seeing from other museums worldwide. <laughs> well, I guess that's the stuff. The expedition ran into trouble even before it left port in Baltimore, when ten members of the group quit. <laughs> they figured out they can't sail? I think they figured out this is not gonna end well. What? Once they were finally underway, Strong storms blew the ship so far off course that it arrived in Bermuda instead of its intended destination. At this point, 11 more Apparently members they quit. they really didn't know how to sail. So in Bermuda, 11 more members quit the expedition. God. More left when the ship arrived in Martinique. With the expedition running critically short of money, the ship's owners ordered it to return to Baltimore. Lafayette blamed the expedition's problems on the captain, saying... The ship's dower Captain Garfield proved himself far less than the Captain Courageous, requiring Ron Hubbard's hand at both the helm and the charts. Sure, that's... blame the Captain, okay. Lafayette later wrote that the expedition was a crazy idea at best, and I knew it, but I went ahead anyway, chartered a four-mastered schooner, and embarked with some 50 luckless souls who haven't stopped their cursings yet. (laughs) He called it a two-bit expedition and financial bust, which resulted in some of its participants making legal claims against him for refunds. I'm sorry, you're the one who squandered the money. He thought he was going to make bank on it, though, didn't he? Yeah, he, he thought he was going to come out um, very rich. Known well. Because the fact, the fact that lots and lots of people quit before they even got to the island they were meant to, it's like, well, what can go wrong when you're en route? Did you not know what being on a ship was like? Or is it obvious that like there's perhaps not enough food <laughs> and stuff? In 1932, following the devastating San Kiprican hurricane, Lafayette travelled to Puerto Rico in November to work for the Red Cross relief effort, something his father volunteered him for. I'm sorry, I would not go near that guy even if I was lying in the pool of my own blood. <laughs> Don't worry. Anyone but him. <laughs> He's not going to be helping many people. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like his dad His dad sent him there and he's just going to take the first excuse to, like, shirk his responsibility. He's not going to be like, oh, while I'm here, I may as well help humanity. He's going to be, fuck this noise. Well, according to his own recounts of his time there, he spent much of his time prospecting unsuccessfully for gold instead of helping those affected by the disaster. Classic. <laughs> Super fucking class. <laughs> he said, 
Harboring the thought that the conquistadors might have left some gold behind, I determined to find it. Gold prospecting in the wake of the conquistadors on the hunting grounds of the pirates in the islands which still reek of Columbus is romantic, and I do not begrudge the sweat which splashed in muddy rivers and the bits of khaki which have probably blown away from the thorn bushes long ago. After a year or more intensive search, after wearing my palms thin wielding a simple pack, after essaying a few hundred sacks of ore, I came back a failure. I'm sorry, you left a failure. <laughs> you had no option of redeeming yourself, sir. But he might have found gold whilst he's helping uh, people hit by a hurricane. I mean, this just seems this just seems to be like quite prescient of a D who quite rightly pointed out that him quitting school was probably a bad idea. <laughs> and, uh, well, here's what I don't understand, right? Okay. I'm not... So, he has this idea that the conquistadors left some gold. Mm -hmm. So, is he saying that he's looking for already mined gold that they've somehow hidden like a pirate? Or is he saying that they mined for gold there and there's obviously still going to be some gold? He thinks he's going to find it by mining for it, yeah. Okay. So, he's a massive idiot. Oh, yeah. I mean, I thought we've established this at this point. Yeah, no, no, I would just, but you know, there's there's shades of massive idiot. I like to be, you know, I like to know exactly what exactly exactly where we are with this with this guy. During this period, Lafayette continued to write, and six of his fiction pieces were published commercially during 1932 and 1933. The pulp magazine Thrilling Adventure became the first to publish one of his short stories in February 1934. Over the next six years, Pope Magazines published around 140 of his stories under a variety of pen names, including Winchester Remington Colt, <laughs> Kurt Von Racken, René Lafayette, Joe Blitz, and Legionnaire 148. Oh, yeah. I gotta, I gotta say, I like Winchester Remington Colt. I, I mean, it's, I mean, to say it's on the nose. The, the fact that it's three names... It really pushes it from silly into that's just too far. <laughs> if it was Winchester Colt, it's like, yeah, it's silly, but I can go for it. But He still seems way ahead of his time, though. <laughs> Although he became known for his fantasy and science fiction stories, he wrote in a wide variety of genres, including adventure fiction, aviation, travel, mystery, western, and even romance stories. His first full-length novel, Buckskin Brigades, was published in 1937. What? That sounds like a, a, an erotic novel and a bad <laughs> one at that. It sounds like the one you, you see near the register when you're at the grocery store. And it has a very photoshopped looking man on it with like his shirt ripped open or something. No, there's no, no one with their shirt off in the cover. There, You saw the cover? Yeah. Yeah, it's a Western novel. See, all you have to do is add the cowboy hat, and it—it's a man with like jeans and a big belt buckle. Oh, am I missing? Am I missing a picture? Uh, if you Google uh, buckskin brigades, there's some some pictures. Although I will ask, do do I review to know who this is? No. Um, I have an idea. Okay, well, don't Google it then, because if you Google the image, it will give away who this is. I might be way, 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 way off. Okay. Um, oh, hang on a minute. 
Oh no, I've just I've just completely clicked. It's not who I thought it was, but I've just worked out who it is. Okay. <laughs> well, that's cool. Yeah, that's why I was just checking before you googled it in case you went, "Oh, it's so and so before before the reveal." I guess there's no real reveal. At some point, it will all fall into place for Addy because Addy, you know who this person is. Is he evil? Oh yes. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. So, he became a highly idiosyncratic writer of science fiction after being taken under the wing under the wing of editor John W. Campbell, who published many of his short stories and also serialized a number of his well-received novelettes that he wrote for Campbell's magazines, Unknown and Astounding Science Fiction. Those were the names of the magazines. Yep. Unknown. Mm-hmm. It's the 1930s. It's very pulpy. They're shocky. going for the mystery. Science fiction newsletter, and I'm gonna, I'm I'm assuming it's pronounced this way. Signals, because it's written like <laughs> signals, except they've replaced the s at the beginning with an x. So, science fiction newsletter Signals reported that Lafayette wrote over one hundred thousand words a month during his peak. His literary earnings helped him to support his new wife, Margaret Polly Grubb. That's the whole name. That's one woman. Margaret Grubb. <laughs> no, she was nicknamed Polly because it, all these stories, people have one name and their nickname is something completely different. Always. So she's called Margaret. We'll How call do her you Polly. get from Margaret to Polly? Oh, God knows. I mean, I sort of understand Peggy. Sort of. Madge, maybe. But, I don't understand. But Paul, I don't understand Margaret to Peggy, and my grandma was a Margaret to Peggy. I think maybe Margaret shorts to Meg, and then Meg to Peg to Peggy. I sort of understand it only because of Agent Carter, which is a great show, and it should have been renewed for a third season. Yes, fuck them. Definitely. I didn't watch season two because I really didn't like the end of season one. Season two was good. But it ends in a way that you'll never get a reconciliation. So now it's not that good. Well, yeah, <laughs> because they just cancelled it and it's wrong. And I miss Haley Atwell so much. <laughs> She's so good. If someone can send me uh, Haley Atwell. Oh, the, the DM me. actual Haley Atwell, the actress. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, please no one send a human being to Addy. Please don't send me Haley Atwell. Oh, that would be like the, the only person best. who is yeah. the only person who is allowed to send you Haley Atwell is Haley Atwell. Yeah. Haley Atwell, <laughs> if you listen to this podcast, please message me and and, <laughs> and also please tweet about this podcast because we re- could really do with some more numbers, and that would be yeah. <laughs> you're like you're like pretty famous, so that would be cool. Yeah. Also, we just love you. Backtracking a little bit to the. Of a Margaret. Polly. Yeah, Margaret Polly. So she was already pregnant when she married Lafayette in April 1933, but had a miscarriage shortly How after. Scandalous. Well, you say that, but it was against society, but premarital sex was around a hell of a lot longer than people thought. It happened all the time. Well, yeah. I'm highly aware, like, premarital, like, sex existed, like, way before marriage, so I assume. Yeah, but the whole Pre-marital the whole thing of sex. It, it wouldn't have happened back then. It was a scandal. It's like, no, it's probably pretty common. Yeah, it's just like socially. It doesn't matter, though, because she miscarried. So no out of marriage baby. But she became pregnant again a few months later. I mean, I, I am sorry that she had a miscarriage because 
it's very traumatic for people. Yeah. Well, she's she's pregnant again now, so hopefully this one will go a bit better for her. Okay. On May 7th, 1934, she gave birth prematurely to a son who was named Lafayette Ronald Hubbard Jr. and was nicknamed Nibs. Okay, I assume that because it's a premature baby, that would make more sense to call it Nibs than call his mother Polly. <laughs> I don't know, Nibs just sounds weird. Because he's small, so Nibs. Their second child, Catherine May, was born on January 15th, 1936. In the spring of 1936, the family moved to Bremerton, Washington. They lived there for a time with Lafayette's aunt and grandmother before finding a place of their own at nearby South Colby. According to one of his friends at the time, they were in fairly dire straits for money, but sustained themselves on the income of his writings. Lafayette spent an increasing amount of time in New York City, working out of a hotel room where his wife suspected him of carrying out affairs. That, that, that's feasible. That's very feasible. Yeah, I'd put money on it. Not because I know what happens next. Just in general, he seems the sort who would have an affair. And you know, there's a bed right there. What's he meant to do? I mean, usually people sleep on those. Oh, Addy. I mean, I said <laughs> usually. Hotel beds? Also, do you really, really need hotel a... Hotel beds? You don't sleep on them. Also, do you really need a bed to have sex? No, but it can help. That depends. How bad is your back? My back's okay. My knee is really dodgy. That's why you're the one lying down. Let, let's not go into my sex positions. Because <laughs> 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 I was about to retort, but I was like, no, let's, let's not almost, open that kind I of words. Almost clear. No, that, was off, almost... that would be for off the air. I could almost hear that thought process. How the fuck am I going to backtrack from, from, from where Addy has just taken this? <laughs> anyway, getting away from that last conversation. In 1938, Lafayette wrote a still unpublished manuscript called Excalibur. <laughs> it was that little chuckle. That was. Good. The manuscript is said to have outlined the basic principles of human existence, and to have been the culmination of 20 years of research. Research of what? Human existence. Well, I think it's research. <laughs> research I, in inverted commas. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he can, he can count himself as human enough to research humans. According to a contributor to Astounding Science Fiction magazine, Lafayette told a 1948 convention of science fiction fans that Excalibur's inspiration came during an operation in which he died for eight minutes. This was actually a dental extraction performed under nitrous oxide, a chemical known for its hallucinogenic effect. Well, did his brain become better after dying for eight minutes? There's I don't think not even died. any evidence that he died. <laughs> yeah, I think you don't die for eight minutes and come back. Like, yeah, but, but to be fair, if anyone has gone through that, I would trust it would be that guy. <laughs> Lafayette said that he realized that while he was dead, he had received a tremendous inspiration, a great message which he must impart to others. He sat at his typewriter for six days and nights and nothing came out. But then Excalibur emerged. That, that's a bad name for your penis. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a pretty good name for a penis since since Excalibur is like a mythical sword. 
Yes, I know. But does that make you the lady of the lake? I, I mean, I assume if I ever met a guy or a woman that claimed their penis is called Excalibur, that would make me Arthur. No, I would assume that that would make you the stone. <laughs> it's a reverse King <laughs> Arthur. So basically, this person is putting the sword into the stone. Oh, yes. So does that mean the stone had a pre-made slot for the sword? Well, no, so I are we the still on a sex story... metaphor here? Because sort of, there is a pre-made slot for a penis. Yes. <laughs> no, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> There is a pre-made... There are several if you utilize the human body in the yeah, right way. Yeah, I was going to say, there's, there's a few, you know. <laughs> well, well I re- do you know what, Amy? I don't even know if you were being completely serious because you did that so fucking deadpan. <laughs> I, I like utilizing deadpan at the right moments. <laughs> yeah. And if do. you're lucky, she likes utilizing Excalibur in the right moments as well. How is it we're talking about a nut job's book and it's got back to sex again? I don't know. Because <laughs> we have dirty minds. Yeah. Arthur J. Burks, the president of the American Fiction Guild, wrote that an excited Lafayette called him and said, I want to see you right away. I have written the book. And then it took him eight months to get the letter. Oh, God, yeah, back in the day. <laughs> it's still the same now. No, now you just text something. I mean, not if you want to be extra. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to end the podcast here. Why? Because because Adi just said that writing a handwritten letter is extra. No, no. I said writing that specific message via mail these days would be extra. I love snail mail. It's awesome. Okay. I have pen pals, and it takes me like two months to get a letter. But I still love the fact that I have physical handwritten letters. I mean, you know usually what? sometimes I can't read all of it because it's hard. But, you know, that's usually my prerogative and not theirs. I have a theory about this. Okay. Um, well, because I think that people do, do still get a great deal of satisfaction from writing and receiving letters through snail mail. Um, and, and I wonder if it harks back to, like, when you're a kid, you only ever get exciting posts. It's only ever Christmas cards, birthday cards, and letters from friends. Wait, and then as it, older, what is this Christmas card shit? Okay, sorry. Hanukkah, do you do cards for Hanukkah? Not really. Okay. Um, I've we, we, do, we, do lock, uh, we do looking yearningly at Christmas shit. <laughs> That's our tradition. <laughs> I apologize for being culturally insensitive. Damn you. I know. But as you get, as you get older... The ratio of fun post to boring post shifts and shifts and shifts and shifts until you get to a certain point where it's basically like, you know, 90% bills and 1% cool stuff. Yeah. And I think that's why it's nice when you when you when you're walking down the stairs to, or, or you're walking to your mailbox and you see something that's got handwriting on it. You know, it's not a bill. You know, it's 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 fun mail. It's fun post. Yeah, exactly. You don't get that on like emails and stuff. There's something very tangible about it. I like your theory. Let's keep that. Yeah. Okay. It works. Makes sense. I mean, I, it's one of the, I, I used to like write, handwrite to people all the time, and it's something that I miss, but now I can't do it anymore. Lafayette believed that Excalibur would revolutionize everything and that it was somewhat more important and would have a greater impact upon people 
than the Bible. Oh, so, you know, humble. But if you know you got the shit, you got the shit. I think he thought he was writing Harry Potter. I think he was right. I think he thought he was writing the Bible Mark 2. Mark 3. But obviously, something changed. It's not even being published. It can't be. It's just too mind-blowing. Oh, okay. You can't handle the truth. I can't handle the sword. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Sorry. I got Christmas cookies, and I thought I was nearly at the end, but there's a whole other layer. Nice. <laughs> According to Burks, Hubbard was so sure that he had something away out and beyond anything else that he had sent telegrams to several book publishers telling them that he had written the book and that they were to meet him at Penn Station and he would discuss with them and go with whomever gave him the best offer. Nobody bought the manuscript. They Did were too blown away. People weren't interested at all. No one came to his Penn Station meeting. Well, you know, I don't... Because even in those days... When somebody says, I've written the book, but I'm not going to tell you about it unless you meet me, it's like, no. Yeah, he just, he went full crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he'd done that sort of like in 1890, that totes would have worked. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that working in the 1800s. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's all about timing. Forrest J. Ackerman, later Lafayette's literary agent, said that Lafayette told him whoever read it either went insane or committed suicide. <laughs> He said that the last time he had shown it to a publisher in New York, he walked into the office to find out what the reaction was. The publisher called for the reader, the reader came in with the manuscript, threw it on the table, and threw himself out the skyscraper window. Right, yeah. Definitely like happened. Yeah. yeah, I have found no record of that happening. I looked for a newspaper report, some sort of... No, that's just his anecdote. So it completely, definitely happened. Everyone who read it mm -hmm. went crazy and killed themselves. I think that's just because it was such a god-awful writing. <laughs> they were like, fuck this. I cannot read anything worse. I don't want to live in this world anymore. In February 1940, Lafayette joined the Explorers Club on the strength of his claimed explorations in the Caribbean. That that one that failed. He persuaded... Oh, yeah. <laughs> he... <laughs> He persuaded the club to let him carry its flag on an, an Alaskan radio experimental expedition to update the U.S. Coast Pilot Guide. He was to travel to the coastlines of Alaska and British Columbia and investigate new methods of radio position finding. The expedition consisted of Hubbard and his wife aboard a two-mast boat called Magician. That, that's actually a great name for a boat. In a November 1940 letter to the Seattle Star newspaper, he said that the expedition was plagued by problems and did not get any further than Ketchikan, near the southern end of the Alaskan Panhandle, far from the Aleutian Islands. Magician's engine broke down only two days after setting off. The Hubbards reached Ketchikan on August 30th, 1940, after many delays following repeated engine breakdowns. The Ketchikan Chronicle reported, making no mention of the expedition, that Lafayette's purpose in coming to Alaska was twofold one to win a bet, and another to gather material for a novel of Alaskan salmon fishing. Not another novel. <laughs> Having underestimated the cost of the trip, he did not have enough money to repair the broken engine. He raised money by writing stories and contributing to the local radio station, and eventually earned enough to fix the engine, making it back to Puget Sound on December 27th, 1940. 
six months after setting out. I imagine that he just came and gave people like his stories and they paid him to stop. (laughs) (laughs) If it makes you money, it makes you money. (laughs) After returning from Alaska, Lafayette applied to join the US Navy. Again? Yeah. The Navy there. What the fuck, dude? They didn't want you. Also, he can't because his eyesight is bad. So he he loopholed his way in. His congressman, Warren G. Magnuson, wrote to President Roosevelt to recommend Lafayette as a gentleman of reputation who was a respected explorer and had marine master's papers for more types of vessels than any other man in the United States. Oh, God. He was described as a key figure in writing organizations, making him politically potential nationally. The congressman concluded, anything you can do for Mr. Hubbard will be appreciated. His friend, Robert MacDonald Ford, by now a state representative for Washington, sent a letter of recommendation describing him as one of the most brilliant men I have ever known. It called him a powerful influence in the Northwest and said that he was well known in many parts of the world and has, and has considerable influence in the Caribbean and Alaska. So is Hubbard just like a really, really good bullshitter? Yeah. Or is he paying for people to say this? No, no, he is just, just like, give me back the stories and then you can, and then you don't have to pay me anymore. He's just a master of lies. The letter also declared that, for courage and ability, I cannot too strongly recommend him. Ford later said that Lafayette had written the letter himself. He said, Surprise! I don't know why Ron wanted a letter. I just gave him a letterhead and said, hell, you're the writer, you write it. Oh, wow. (laughs) He was commissioned as a lieutenant in the US Navy Reserve on July 19th. 1941. Oh no. Oh, that's bad timing, dude. Oh no. What do you mean? That's perfect timing. Well, spoiler alert. (laughs) I don't. Something's gonna come. Most of his military service was spent ashore in the continental United States on administrative or training duties. I think I might have done that really stupid. Hang on. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, sorry. That was me being. That was me being an idiot and thinking that the World War World War Two started. In 1942. No, it, it started in no. 1939. Yeah, I know that now. I just Googled it. <laughs> I'm really, really bad with dates. Really bad. It's fine. Uh, you want an exact date? Because it was September 1st, 1939, when the Germans invaded Poland. Yes, but when was America getting involved? After Pearl Harbor, which hadn't happened yet. In 1941. Yep, yeah, in December. This is July, so... Yeah, it still stands. So we're screwed. He served for a short time in Australia, but was sent home after quarrelling with his superiors. Surprise. He briefly commanded two anti-submarine vessels in coastal waters in 1942 and 1943. After he reported that his vessel, the PC-815, had attacked and sunk two Japanese submarines off Oregon in May 1943, his claim was rejected by the commander of the Northwest Sea Frontier. So he's just lying about sinking things now as well. Yeah. Are you surprised? Are you literally surprised by no, that? No, I'm not. But, but, there's, but the thing is, it's that any accomplished liar knows that if you're going to make a lie believable, you have to have it uncorrob- like really difficult to corroborate so people aren't going to bother trying to look for it. So 
Saying I've got friends in the Caribbean, you're not going to check that out. I can get away with that. Saying I sunk ships on a submarine <laughs> full of other people, that that relies on an awful lot of people not saying something. That's a really terrible lie. That's why I'm yeah. saying it, because he seems like an accomplished liar up to this point. A month later, Lafayette mistakenly sailed the ship into Mexican territorial waters and conducted gunnery practice off the Coronado Islands, in the belief that they were uninhabited and belonging to the United States. I, I'm not surprised anymore by anything by this guy. The Mexican government complained, and Lafayette was relieved of command. They complained? I wouldn't be surprised, though, if he knew and he just didn't give a shit. A fitness report written after the incident rated him as unsuitable for independent duties and, quote, lacking in the essential qualities of judgment, leadership, and cooperation. He served for a while as the navigational and training officer aboard the USS Algol while it was based at Portland. A fitness report from this period recommended promotion, describing him as a capable and energetic officer, but very temperamental, and above average navigator. Their average is probably really low. However, he never held another such position and did not serve aboard another ship after the Algol. The boats at this point were like, get that fucker off of us. Lafayette claimed that his life underwent a turbulent period immediately following World War II. After moving to California, his wife had refused to uproot their children from their home in Birmingham, Washington to join him there. The marriage was by now in terminal difficulties and he chose to stay in California. In August 1945, he moved into the Pasadena mansion of John Jack Parsons, a leading rocket propulsion researcher at the California Institute of Technology and founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Just sheer curiosity, that, did that John person know he moved into his house? Yeah, he was okay Or with did it. he just appear there one day and like, I'm not moving, dude. Parsons led a double life as an avid occultist and thelemite, a follower of the English ceremonial magician Alistair Crowley, and leader of a lodge of Crowley's magical order. That's a great name. Well, Alistair Crowley? Yes. Mm. He's a very interesting figure. We might cover him one day. Lafayette befriended Parsons and soon became sexually involved with his 21-year-old girlfriend, Sarah Betty Northrup. Wait, wait. He started fucking his friend's girlfriend. Yep. Brilliant, let's move on. Despite the fact that Lafayette was having sex with his girlfriend, Parsons was very impressed with him and reported it to Crowley. Well, yeah, that's because he was sitting in the corner watching, acknowledging his techniques. <laughs> he wrote, He is a gentleman. He has red hair, green eyes, is honest and intelligent, and we have become great friends. He moved in with me about two months ago, and although Betty and I are still friendly, she has transferred her sexual affection to Ron. Although he has no formal training in magic, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. From some of his experiences, I deduce that he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He describes his sure. angel as a beautiful winged woman with red hair, who he calls the Empress, and who has guided him through his life and saved him many times. He is the most thelemic person I have ever met, and is in complete accord with our own principles. God damn it, dude. Lafayette became an enthusiastic member of the cult. The two men collaborated on the Babylon Working, a sex magic ritual intended to summon an incarnation of Babylon, the supreme philometic goddess. It was undertaken over several nights in February and March in 1946, 
in order to summon an elemental who would participate in further sex magic. It was described by a cult member who was present as Parsons used his, and this bit's in quotations, magic wand to whip up a vortex of energy so the elemental would be summoned. Translated into plain English, Parsons jerked off in the name of a spiritual advancement whilst Hubbard scanned the astral plane for signs and visions. He, that, that's the best way to explain it ever. The elemental arrived a few days later in the form of Marjorie Cameron, who agreed to participate in Parsons' rituals. Soon afterwards, Parsons, Lafayette and Sarah agreed to set up a business partnership, Allied Enterprises, in which they invested nearly their entire savings, the vast majority contributed by Parsons. The plan was for Lafayette and Sarah to buy yachts in Miami and sell them to the West Coast to sell for profit. However, Lafayette had a different idea. He wrote to the US Navy requesting permission to leave the country. Parsons attempted to recover his money by obtaining an injunction to prevent Lafayette and Sarah leaving the country or disposing of the remnants of his assets. They attempted to sail anywhere but were forced back to port by a storm. A week later, Allied Enterprises was dissolved. Parsons received only $2,900 from Lafayette. He had to sell his mansion to developers soon afterwards to recoup his losses. Oh, surprise. So he just completely ripped him off? Yep, and stole his girl because on August 10th, Lafayette married Sarah. <laughs> Wait, wasn't he still with his wife? Yes, he is still married to Polly. It's not until a year later that his first wife learned that he had remarried. Even though they're still married. Well, they're not together, so... He agreed to divorce Polly in June that year, and the marriage was dissolved shortly afterwards, with Polly given custody of their children. Well, I mean, yeah, that would just make sense. The judge just looked at him and said, listen, dude, <laughs> no. During this period, Lafayette authored a document called The Affirmations. They consisted of a series of statements relating to various physical, sexual, psychological, and social issues that he was encountering in his life. The affirmations appear to have been intended to be used as a form of self-hypnosis with the intent of resolving his psychological problems and instilling a positive mental attitude. Some of them included, Your eyes are getting progressively better. They become bad when you use them as an excuse to escape the Naval Academy. You have no reason to keep them bad. You can tell all the romantic tales you wish, but you know which ones were lies. You have real enough experience to make anecdotes forever. Stick to your true adventures. And masturbation does not injure or make insane. Your parents were in error. Everyone masturbates. <laughs> Aww. Okay, that one I sort of understand. <laughs> <clears throat> that one should be taught especially to girls. Yeah, that's just, that's a standard one. It's like, it didn't hurt anyone. Everyone does it. It's fine. I, I mean, if, if you do it too much, it can hurt you. Moderation is key sometimes. After his wedding to Sarah, the couple settled at Laguna Beach in California, where he resumed his fiction writing to supplement the small disability allowance that he received as a war veteran. After struggling to support himself for a number of years, he wrote to the VA, who eventually increased his pension. However, his money problems continued. On August 31st, 1948, he was arrested and pleaded guilty to a charge of petty theft, for which he was ordered to pay a $25 fine. In late 1948, he and Sarah moved to Savannah, Georgia. It was here that he began to make the first public mentions of what was to become Dianetics. 
His first thoughts on the subject were compiled in a short book called The Original Thesis, which contained basic conclusions about human aberrations and handling them with what he called auditing. His first published articles in Dianetics were Terra Incognita, The Mind, in the Explorer Club Journal, and another one that in and another one that impacted people more heavily in astounding science fiction. The positive public response to these articles led him to expand into Dianetics, the modern science of mental health. He wrote in January 1949 that he was working on a book of psychology about the cause and cure of nervous tension, which he was going to call The Dark Sword, Excalibur, or Science of the Mind. Again with Excalibur? In April 1949, he wrote to several professional organisations to offer his research, and none were interested. His editor, John Campbell, invited Lafayette and Sarah to move into a cottage at Bay Head in New Jersey, not far from his own home. In July, Campbell recruited an acquaintance, Dr. Joseph Winter, to help develop Lafayette's new therapy of Dianetics. Campbell told Winter, With cooperation from some institutions, some psychiatrists... Lafayette has worked on all types of cases, institutionalized schizophrenics, apathies, manics, depressives, perverts, stuttering, neuroses, in all nearly 1,000 cases. But just a brief sampling of each type, he doesn't have a proper statistic in the usual sense. He has one statistic. He has cured every patient he has worked with. He has, ta- he has cured ulcers, arthritis, and asthma. Yeah, I can believe that. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I believe it. <laughs> the basic principle of Dianetics was that the brain recorded every experience and event in a person's life, even when unconscious. Bad or painful experiences were stored as what he called engrams in a reactive mind. These could be triggered later in life, causing emotional and physical problems. By carrying out a process he called auditing, a person could be regressed through his engrams to re-experience past experiences. This enabled engrams to be cleared. The subject would now be in a state of clear, which would be a perfectly functioning mind with an improved IQ and photographic memory. The clear would be cured of physical ailments ranging from poor eyesight to the common cold, which Lafayette claimed was psychosomatic. So he's claiming every, every, every problem with a person is based on poor memories and he's found a way of getting rid of them to cure everything so go to therapy just go to therapy well this was this was sort of like pre that idea okay to be fair therapy existed before this guy was born yeah at but this it, point no, freud was looking at him like yeah, sorry, you no, but, dumb motherfucker sorry, no what no sorry yeah but um this particular person was was anti-psychiatry he wanted to create this method of therapy, of psychotherapy, that was completely opposite to what the establishment uh, meant. What I meant mm-hmm. was like people, like, what I meant was therapy hadn't been invented, was I meant like, you know, people didn't go to therapy as a, as a general rule, like yeah. um, people have a tendency to. This was the day where it's not talk about your issues, it's repress it. And the only people who go to therapists are air quotes, crazy people. Which I'm all for. I do. I like pr- crazy people. Otherwise, I wouldn't be friends with you guys. Through that. Mm, yeah. Also, <laughs> like, if you think about it, like Sigmund Freud, who created psychoanalysis, he didn't create psychiatry. He wasn't for psychiatry. He was 
up for therapy. He literally created the subject of a patient sitting on a couch for an hour at a time talking. That was his concept. He also created the idea of overpaying therapy, but you know, that's when you got it, use it. Winter submitted a paper on Dianetics to the Journal of American Medical Association and the American Journal of Psychiatry, but both journals rejected it. Lafayette and his collaborators decided to announce Dianetics in Campbell's Astounding Science Fiction instead. Dianetics was launched in Astounding's May 1950 issue, and on 9th of May, the companion book Dianetics, The Modern Science of Mental Health was published. Lafayette abandoned freelance writing in order to promote Dianetics, writing several books about it in the next decade, delivering an estimated 4,000 lectures whilst founding Dianetics research organisations. He called Dianetics a milestone for man comparable to his discovery of fire and superior to his invention of the wheel and the arch. God damn it. It was an immediate commercial success. By August 1950, it had sold 55,000 copies, selling at the rate of 4,000 a week, and was being translated into French, German, and Japanese. 500 Dianetic auditing groups had been set up across the United States. The American Psychological Association criticised the book's claims as not supported by empirical evidence. Scientific America said that the book contained more promises and, and less evidence per page than any publication since the invention of printing. <laughs> <laughs> I like that quote. <laughs> That's kind of funny considering the first thing printed was the Bible. Apparently that has more evidence. <laughs> you learn something new every day. <laughs> well, I think that people think, that, yeah, I don't think that people, the Bible... But the Bible is, you know, written by God, so it's so it's not like... Um, you need uh, proof? Yeah. Okay. Fuck proof. The New Republic called the book a bold and immodest mixture of complete nonsense and perfectly reasonable common sense, taken from long-acknowledged findings and disguised and distorted by a crazy, newly invented terminology. Dianetics was not cheap, yet people were nevertheless <laughs> willing to pay. Surprise! Yeah. One member recalled doing little but tearing open envelopes and pulling out $500 checks from people who wanted to take an auditor's course. Financial controls were lax, and Lafayette withdrew large sums with no explanation of what he was doing with it. On one occasion, he took a lump, a lump sum of $56,000, equivalent to, f to half a million, out of the Los Angeles Foundation's proceeds. Cocaine. Probably. <laughs> Lafayette played a very active role in the Dianetics boom, writing, lecturing, and training auditors. Many of those who knew him spoke of him being spoke of being impressed by his personal charisma. He had charisma. All you need to get rich is to be able to bullshit. Despite the commercial success, supporters soon began to have doubts about Dianetics. Really? I wonder why. <laughs> Winter had become disillusioned and wrote that he had never seen a single convincing clear. He said I've seen some individuals who are supposed to have been clear, but their behaviour does not conform to the definition of the state. He also deplored the Foundation's omission of any serious scientific research. Dianetics lost public credibility in August 1950 when a presentation by Lafayette before an audience of 6,000 where he introduced a clear named Sonia. He told the audience that as a result of undergoing Dianetics, she now possessed perfect recall. In the demonstration that followed, she failed to remember a single formula in physics, the subject in which she was majoring, 
or the colour of Lafayette's tie when his back was turned. A large part of the audience got up and left. I mean, it was perfect. By late 1950, the foundation was in financial crisis and more than 200,000 in debt, which comes to 1.6 million in today's currency. The collapse of Lafayette's marriage to Sarah created yet more problems. He had began an affair with his 20-year-old public relations assistant in late 1950. God damn it, that cradle robber. While Sarah started a relationship with Dianetics auditor Mike Hollister. Lafayette secretly denounced the couple to FBI in March 1951, portraying them in a letter as communist infiltrators. Oh, fuck that guy. <laughs> According to Lafayette, Sarah was currently intimate with communists, but evidently under coercion. Drug addiction set in fall 1950. Nothing of this is known to me until a few weeks ago. The FBI did not take him seriously. An agent annotated his correspondence with the comment, appears mental. <laughs> I mean, you just have to have a two-minute conversation with that guy and you'd probably reach the same conclusion. Oh. I like that even in the midst of the communist scare and McCarthyism, some people are just like, no, dude, your wife's not having an affair because she's a communist. You're just nuts. Yeah, I think I think that he might be our hero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that FBI agent is the hero, yeah. <laughs> Three weeks later, Lafayette and two foundation staff kidnapped Sarah and their year-old daughter, Alexis, and forcibly took them to San Bernardo. San Bernardino, sorry, in California, where he attempted to find a doctor to examine Sarah and declare her insane. What is wrong <laughs> with that dude? Um, see the FBI comment appears mental. No, at this point, <laughs> he's mental. Annie. What? What is your damage? It will all because as soon as as soon as you work out who this person actually is, you'll go. Oh. <laughs> at this point. You haven't even said his name. However, I assume I because of the phrase Dianetics. No, you haven't said his, you know, name. The name that he's known by. Yeah. It's coming. It'll be soon. So, he let Sarah go because he couldn't find a doctor to call her insane, but took Alexis to Havana in Cuba. Sarah filed a divorce suit in April 1951 that accused him of marrying her bigamously and subjecting her to sleep deprivation, beatings, strangulation, kidnapping, and exhaustions to commit suicide. At this point, I trust the woman more than him. Oh god, yeah. And just like, god damn it, man. She finally secured the return of her daughter in June 1951 by agreeing to a settlement with her husband in which she signed a statement written by him. The statement said, The things I have said about L. Ron Hubbard in courts and the public prints have been grossly exaggerated or entirely false. I have not at any time believed otherwise that L. Ron Hubbard is a fine and brilliant man. To be fair, I wanted to say O oh before, but I didn't want to say his name in case you wanted <laughs> to have a more dramatic reveal. It's not really a, a reveal, it's just... No, if you know what Dianetics is, it's not really a reveal, but I still didn't want to say his name. By the way, do you know I live on the same street as the Israeli branch of the Scientology Church? Oh, fuck, when this episode comes out, dude, you are screwed. 
Yeah. Oh, please. They don't know where I live. Well, they know you're on well, the same street now. now. You live on the same street as that judge. It's a fucking long street. Uh, oh, yes. Also, they they know how I look. And they listen. They always listen. I'm just saying, if they want to be dead, who got me dead? To be fair, I would be, like, really fair. Like, I would be so, um, what's the word? God damn it, I forgot now. Flattered? Yes, flattered if Scientology would assume I'm important enough <laughs> to be followed and seen as a threat. <laughs> yeah. I would be like, oh, fuck, yeah. I'm, I'm a big deal, son. We're big enough for this shit. It's, it's like one of those <laughs> things, if you can somehow get, like, personally condemned by the church of scientology or like you can get trump to angry tweet about you you are set up for life you you you've got that fame now it's a good foundation mm -hmm. to go from don purcell a millionaire businessman and dianeticist agreed to support a new dianetics foundation in wichita his collaboration with lafayette ended after less than a year when they fell out over the future direction of dianetics the Wichita Foundation became financially non-viable after a court ruled that it was liable for the unpaid debts of its defunct predecessors. The ruling promoted Purcell and other directors of the Wichita Foundation to file for voluntary bankruptcy. Lafayette immediately resigned and accused Purcell of having been bribed by the American Medical Association to destroy Dianetics. He established a Hubbard College on the other side of town where he continued to promote Dianetics, while fighting Purcell in the courts over the Foundation's intellectual property. Six weeks after setting up the Hubbard College and marrying a staff member, 18-year-old Mary Sue Whip, Lafayette oh, closed it down. Sense. Sorry? Sorry, just like divorced, married, younger, younger. Oh, yeah. Ew. Yeah, he's definitely one of those creepy fuckers who likes to fuck teenagers. Lafayette closed college down and moved with his new bride to Phoenix, Arizona. He established a hub. At this point, I'm just imagining he's running away. <laughs> Essentially, he just keeps skipping out on his problems, yeah. He established a Hubbard Association of Scientologists International to promote his new science of certainty, Scientology. Science oh, God, of where certainty. Did it come from? I, I didn't know that was where it came from. Mm -hmm. Dear, oh dear. It's not the best, but it's written by a madman, so what do you expect? Have you um, read Battlefield Earth? No. I, I've been tempted to a few times. I hear it's not as bad as the movie. <laughs> well, now bear in mind, I mean, I read it like before I, before I knew anything about Scientology or, or L. Ron Hubbard or, or anything of that nature. It's not bad. Mm. <laughs> it's actually quite an intriguing idea. Yeah, well, I've heard that, like, as a science fiction writer, he was pretty good. It's just he went mad. Well, did he go mad? Or was this all a calculated way to make money and get people to worship him? Mm. You know, how many cult leaders um, have true intent and are just mentally ill? And how, how many cult leaders are just manipulative cunts? No, that's the comment I made after researching this when I was speaking to Martin, was this guy might be one of the smartest guys I've ever seen for the sheer amount of stuff he got away with and how manipulative he was. It's like, he, he's just a con man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, he doesn't he doesn't believe his bullshit, but he's a con man. I think it's important for him to be ill, but he's not, 
he's not responsible or culpable for his actions, and I think that he very much was. Mm. I think he was a very good con man, and that's the problem. Science fiction writer Harlan Ellison told a story of seeing Lafayette at a gathering at the Hydra Club in 1953. Lafayette was complaining of not being able to make a living on what he was being paid as a science fiction writer. Ellison says that Lester Del Rey, another sci-fi author, told Lafayette that what he needed to do to get rich was start a religion. <laughs> Technically, they do get exempt from taxes. Oh yeah, starting a cult is a massively um, lucrative enterprise. Mm -hmm. That's why so many people do it. Mm -hmm. Lafayette expanded upon the basis of Dianetics to construct a spiritually orientated doctrine based on the concept that the true self of a person was a Thetan, an immortal, omniscient... Thetan. Sorry? Thetan. Thetan. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thetan. An immortal, omniscient, and potentially omnipotent entity. Lafayette taught that Thetans, having created the material universe, had forgotten their godlike powers and become trapped in physical bodies. Scientology aimed to habilitate each person's self, the, the Thetan, to restore its original capacities and become once again an operating Thetan. Lafayette promulgated Scientology through a series of lectures, bulletins, and books such as A History of Man and Scientology 88008. That Weird title. Is... <laughs> it's actually 8-8008. Isn't that something to do with... Um... Because I'm pretty sure the law is that the Thetans were here like millions and millions of years ago, and then like there's something to do with like being killed by volcanoes or something. Yeah, and it it might be a date. It might be a date reference or something. Mm. I'm sure it ties in somewhere to his thing. Scientology was organised in a very different way from the Dianetics movement. The Hubbard's Association of Scientologists was the only official Scientology organisation. Training procedures and doctrines were standardised and promoted through HAS, Hubbard Association Scientologist, publications, and administers and auditors were not permitted to deviate from Hubbard's approach. Branches, or orgs, were organised as franchises, rather like a fast food restaurant chain. Each franchise holder was required to pay 10% of income to Hubbard's central organisation. They were expected to find new recruits, known as raw meat, but were restricted to providing only basic services. Lafayette started off with only a few dozen followers, generally dedicated Dianetics. He was joined in Phoenix by his 18-year-old son Nibs, who's the same age as his wife, who had been unable to settle oh, down in high school. Oh. <laughs> Did I make that a little bit creepier? Was there an amount of non-creepy here? Well, I, I just... I just twinked when I read that, that it's the same age as his wife. It's like, yeah. There's like, knowing that she's 18 is creepy. And then having it brought home that he has a son who's 18 means that he's lower more than 18 years older than her makes it super creepy. Yeah. There's one thing when you're old enough to be someone's parent, but when you're even older than that, it's, yeah. It's all layers of creepy. If you were an adult... Before they were born, that's fucking creepy. Yep. Nibs had decided to become a Scientologist, moving into his father's home and went on to become a Scientology staff member and professor. Oh, Nibs, do you just want to be loved by your daddy? Yeah. <laughs> on September 24th, 1952, Lafayette's wife Mary Sue gave birth to their first child, a daughter who they named 
Diana Meredith DeWolf Hubbard. DeWolf. Yep. And probably after the goddess Diana as well. Yeah, he's... Yeah. Which part of her name was DeWolf? He just liked DeWolves. In it. In February 1953, Lafayette acquired a doctorate from the unaccredited Sequoia University. According to a Scientology biography, this was given in recognition of his outstanding work on Dianetics. However... Or he just paid them enough. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a, a give them money and they give you... A, a piece of paper. Yeah. Have fun. The British government concluded in the 1970s that Sequoia University was a degree mill operated by a chiropractor. Ironically, still still more valuable than a Trump University degree. <laughs> yep. I mean, at least you get a piece of paper at the end of it. Trump <laughs> University just takes your money. Yep. <laughs> British government officials noted in a report written in 1977 saying, it is not and never had any authority whatsoever to issue diplomas or degrees, and the dean is sought by the authorities for questioning. <laughs> a few weeks after becoming Dr. Hubbard, Lafayette wrote to Helen O'Brien, who had taken over the day-to-day -day management of Scientology in the United States. He proposed that Scientology should be transformed into a religion. Instead of a cult. Well, at this point, it's a... I don't know what it would be classed at. I'm not entirely sure. Because do, do Scientologists... Do Scientologists believe in the Judeo-Christian God alongside all their mumbo-jumbo shit? Is it more like, you know, the Mormons, where it's like, it's it's Christianity, but it's wacky Christianity? Or is there, is there a is, whole... Wait, wait, of... wait. Is there a non-wacky Christianity? Well, okay, no, sorry. <laughs> sorry, when I say wacky, well, sorry. No, let me, let me rephrase that. No, all Christianity <laughs> is wacky. All religion is wacky. But what I mean is, there is like the traditional... Yeah. Catholic Protestant um, Christianity, and then there's the whole um, Mormon. Oh, we invented a prophet, but only we believe in him. Kind of wacky. I, as far as I'm aware, and I've not looked too deep into Scientology itself because I do want to cover Scientology as its own separate episode. Um, it's not based on like Christian teachings as like a foundation the way Mormonism is. I think it's its own complete separate thing. I wonder who the deity is. Or is the deity yourself? Because you're a Thetan and you're a godlike being. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, I mean, you it's, are... it's about unleashing the your inner god and becoming a higher power. So there isn't a one god. I could be but wrong. Technically, wait, but technically you are part of a bigger god. So there is sort of one god and you are a fragment of that god. In Scientology? Yes. And it's just a made up, it's just, is it, it's, no, it's... A deity that is only a deity of Scientology. They haven't well, yeah. stolen their deity from another religion. I assume it's... Thetans are all gods, and or godlike beings, and all humans are Thetans trapped in human bodies, and you've got to basically learn to free yourself before you die and become reincarnated again. Um, and yeah, so there's no one god, it's just a, a pantheon of everyone's a god, but we can't be gods because we're trapped as humans. Just, just very curious, and if you don't know the answer to this question, it just, it, it, I completely understand. Are they um, um, transphobic, Scientology? I have no idea, but probably. Because they kind of are wrong. very homophobic. I was just thinking that since their whole like religion is based on them transforming to who they're meant to be, it would be super fucking ironic if they're transphobes. But they, they're also they, they are um, homophobic. 
as far as I know. Because all gods are straight. I assume technically God is asexual, but what the fuck do I know about gods? Wait, I do know about gods. It's the one Titan thing that I don't know about. I I can't see an easy answer straight away. It's something I'd have to look into. O'Brien was not enthusiastic about this idea and resigned the following September, claiming to be worn out by work. She criticised Lafayette for creating a temperate zone voodoo in its inelasticity, inexplicable procedures, and mindless group euphoria. He was fucking them. Only the teenage ones. We know that. Yeah, only the hot ones. On December 18th, 1953, Lafayette incorporated the Church of Scientology, Church of American Science, and Church of Spiritual Engineering in Camden, New Jersey. Scientology New Jersey do them? <laughs> Scientology franchises became Churches of Scientology, and some auditors began dressing as clergymen complete with clerical collars. Oh, come on! <laughs> if they were arrested in the course of their activities, Lafayette advised they should sue for massive damages for molesting a man of God going about his business. Oh, come on! <laughs> wow. I'm surprised that more Americans aren't pissed about this, because they, cause he's like basically taken their their stupidity about Christianity and completely taken advantage of it. Yeah. Through tax loopholes and, you know, people being treated with deference and stuff. I'm surprised they're not more pissed. I think it's because famous people are on board and famous people are so beloved that it's okay. And again, that's why I'm surprised that it's not basically the same Judeo-Christian God, because, you know, but then I guess the Christians just think that it's godless Hollywood anyway, don't they? So Lafayette marketed Scientology through medical claims, such as attracting polio sufferers by presenting the Church of Scientology as a scientific research foundation investigating polio cases. Oh, come on! One advertisement during this period stated, Plagued by illness? We will make you able to have good health. Get processed by the finest capable auditors in the world today. Personally coached and monitored by L. Ron Hubbard. Scientology became highly profitable, and Lafayette was being paid around 250000 a year. Oof, in the 50s? Yeah. The equivalent of 2.2 million. During this period, Mary Sue gave birth to three more children. Wow. They're they're really rocking it. Yeah. So the first child, well, their second child, Jeffrey Quentin McCauley, was born on January 6th, 1954. Mary Suzette Rochelle on the February on February 13th, 1955. And Arthur Ronald Conway on June 6th, 1958. In the spring of 1959, he used his newfound wealth to purchase St. Hill Manor, 18th century country house in Sussex, formerly owned by Sway Mansingh II, Maharaja of Jaipur. The house became his permanent residence and an international training centre for Scientologists. Doesn't Scientology still own that? Yeah, as far as I'm aware, they didn't do. know they had such a presence in this country. Yeah, they fucking do, man. They. Like, I know we don't. Sorry, I know that they've got like you know. I know. Sorry, I didn't know that L. Ron Hubbard like lived here for for years. I didn't know that. Yeah, I've just looked it up. Han, it is still a center for Scientology today. Wow, that's insane. I've uh, thrown a couple of pictures of the manor onto Skype. Holy shit! Well, fuck. That's wow. It's an impressive building, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Owning that is like. Dude. 
By the start of the 1960s, Lafayette was the leader of a worldwide movement with thousands of followers. However, he believed that Scientology was being infiltrated by saboteurs and spies, and introduced security checking to identify those he termed potential trouble sources and suppressive persons. Members of the Church of Scientology were interrogated with the aid of e-meters, and were asked questions such as, have you ever practiced homosexuality? And have you ever had an unkind thought about L. Ron Hubbard? I haven't practiced homosexuality. I do it without practice. <laughs> I, was that. I don't practice homosexuality. I succeed at homosexuality. <laughs> I've perfected it. Scientologists were even interrogated about crimes committed in their past lives. Questions such as, have you ever destroyed a culture? Did you come to Earth for evil purposes? And my personal favourite, have you ever zapped anyone? Zapped? Zapped. Well, I mean, if my <laughs> brother used um, one of those mosquito zappers on me several times, does that count? Yes. Yeah, you said zapped. zapped well, yeah. well, shit, he's not allowed in the Church of Scientology. <laughs> Lafayette also sought to exert political influence, advising Scientologists to vote against Richard Nixon in the 1960 presidential elections, and establishing a Department of Government Affairs to bring the government and hostile philosophies or societies into a state of complete compliance with the goals of Scientology. To be fair, that's like one of the only things I agree with. I'm not voting for Nixon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we got to give him that one. That was, that was a good one. The US government was aware of his activities. The FBI had a lengthy file on him, including a 1951 interview with an agent who considered him, air quotes, a mental case. Again, the yeah. FBI are spot on. I'm agent. <laughs> it's the same agent. <laughs> Police forces in a number of jurisdictions began exchanging information about Scientology, which eventually led to prosecutions, which for the 50s was insane because police jurisdictions did not share stuff. They still don't really like sharing stuff. No. In 1958, the US Internal Revenue Service withdrew the Washington, D.C. Church of Scientology's tax exemption after it found that Lafayette was profiting unreasonably from Scientology's supposed non-profit income. The IRS is always the ones who get you. The Food and Drug Administration took action against Scientology's medical claims, seizing thousands of pills being marketed as radiation cures, as well as publications and e-meters. Wow. Scientology was accused of brainwashing, blackmail, extortion, and damaging the mental health of its members in Victoria, Australia. The Victorian state government established a board of inquiry into Scientology in November 1963. Its reports condemned every aspect of Scientology and Lafayette himself. He was described as being of doubtful insanity, having a persecution complex, and displaying strong indications of paranoid schizophrenia with delusions of grandeur. His writings were characterised as nonsensical, abounding in self-glorification and grandiosity, replete with histrionics and hysterical incontinent outbursts. The report led to Scientology being banned in Victoria, Western Australia and South Australia, and led to more negative publicity around the world. Australia's on this shit. <laughs> yeah, is Scientology still banned there, do you know? They still have Scientology in Australia. It looks like there are parts of Australia where it's not banned. Ah, uh, so they just banned it from the state. 
But still, a big chunk of Australia has said no, so that's good. In April 1966, Lafayette travelled to the southern African country Rhodesia, which is today Zimbabwe, and looked into setting up a base there at a hotel on Lake Kariba, hoping to form a remote safe haven for Scientology. Rhodesia refused to renew his visa, compelling him to leave the country. In July 1968, the British Minister of Health, Kenneth Robinson, announced that foreign Scientologists would no longer be permitted to enter the UK, and Lafayette himself was excluded from the country as a undesirable alien. <laughs> He'd be proud of that, though. Lafayette took three major new initiatives in the face of these challenges. Ethics technology was introduced to tighten internal disciplines within Scientology. It required Scientologists to disconnect from any organisation or individual, including family members, deemed to be disruptive or suppressive. Scientologists were also required to write knowledge reports on each other, reporting transgressions or misapplications of Scientology methods. Lafayette promulgated a long list of punishable misdemeanours, crimes and high crimes. The fair game policy was also introduced, which was applicable to anyone deemed an enemy of Scientology. This is the list that Eccentric Earth wants to be on, yeah? Yeah. In March 1966, he created the Guardian's Office, headed by his wife Mary Sue. It dealt with Scientology's external affairs, including public relations, legal actions, and the gathering of intelligence on perceived threats. As Scientology faced increasing negative media attention, the Guardian office retaliated with hundreds of writs for libel and slander, issued more than 40 in a single day. At the end of 1966, Lafayette acquired his own fleet of ships. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> he established the Hubbard Explorational Company Limited, which purchased three ships. The Enchanter, a 40-ton schooner, the, Av the Avon River, an old trawler, and the Royal Scotsman, a former Irish sea cattle ferry that he made his home and flagship. Well, hang on a minute. Well, hang on a minute. Are you saying that I only need four boats and I have a fleet? Well, this guy's got three. <laughs> okay, I'm just had a quick look. Um, what constitutes a fleet? A fleet is what? usually a large group of ships, but it can be a group, but, but it can be any group of vessels like planes or cars that operate as a unit. So any amount, as long as it operates as a unit, is classed as a fleet. So technically, oh. it could be a fleet of scooters? Yeah. So I have a fleet of cats. Do they operate as a unit? When they're hungry, yeah. <laughs> His ships were crewed by the Sea Organization, or Sea Org, a group of Scientologist volunteers with the support of a couple of professional seamen. <laughs> is it because I said seamen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, what is the application process to be a seaman? Do you just, like, check if you can uh, swim along? Well, when I was at school, we did, like, pretend Navy, Army, Air Force, and I was in the pretend Navy, and I got my able seaman's ticket. So I'm not just a seaman, I'm an able seaman. <laughs> I thought you were a disabled seaman. I am now, but back then I wasn't. Even the best seaman lose it. Indeed. In early 1967, Sea Org began an eight-year voyage, sailing from port to port in the Mediterranean Sea and eastern North Atlantic. Taken back? We don't want him. <laughs> Ken Urquhart, Ken, Lafayette's personal assistant at the time, later recalled 
Hubbard said we had to keep moving because there were so many people after him. If they caught up with him, they would cause him so much trouble that he would be unable to continue his work. Scientology would not get into the world and there would be a social and economic chaos, if not a nuclear holocaust. Hang on two seconds. Get out of here. One. I think the seaman is back. I, I assume that's the Scientologist breaking into a house. <laughs> no, it's just... They a... found her. If it is, they've been watching me for a while. <laughs> it, you've said the name L. Ron Hubbard too many times, they come for Damn. you. Damn. It's like Bloody Mary. Ninja will protect me, won't you, Ninja? <laughs> sure. He's going to go and the cat flap. The fleet of cats. He received daily telex messages from Scientology organizations around the world reporting their statistics and income. The Church of Scientology sent him 15000 the equivalent of 110000 a week, and millions of dollars were transferred to his bank accounts. Couriers arrived regularly, conveying luxury food or cash that had been smuggled from England to avoid currency export restrictions. Lafayette sought to establish a safe haven in a friendly little country where Scientology would be allowed to prosper. The fleet, oh God. <laughs> the fleet stayed at Corfu for several months between 1968 and 1969. He renamed his ships after Greek gods. Oh, goddess, the hubris. The Sea Org was represented as Professor Hubbard's Philosophy School in a telegram to the Greek government. In March 1969, however, he and his ships were ordered to leave. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, Cyprus and Greece and Israel just, dude, just no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just no. That's all we have to say. Like, no, no, we're not even going to engage. Just no. <laughs> just, just, we're insane enough as it is here. Just leave. Are you sure you want to come in here? I don't think so. Scientologists around the world were presented with a glamorous picture of life in the Sea Org, and many applied to join him aboard the fleet. What they found was rather different from the image. Most of those joining had no nautical experience. Mechanical That's difficulties surprising. and blunders by the crews led to a series of embarrassing incidents and near disasters. Again, surprising. Yeah, it Keeping in, in keeping with all his other expeditions. Yeah. Following one incident in which the rudder of the Royal Scotsman was damaged during a storm, Lafayette ordered the ship's entire crew to be reduced to condition of liability and wear grey rags tied to their arms. The ship itself was treated the same way, with dirty tarpaulins tied around the funnel to symbolise its lower status. I just imagine that he's going to get the ship off the ship and tie <laughs> grey rags Is this dude really trying to shame a boat right now? Yes, he's shaming a boat. He's shaming his own boat. <laughs> yeah, he's shaming his, like, you bad boat. That's the fucked up part, though. He's after, shaming after his After all I've done for you, boat. I've shown you the world! According to those on board, conditions were appalling. The crew was worked to the point of exhaustion, given meagre rations, and forbidden to wash or change their clothes for several weeks. Lafayette maintained a harsh disciplinary regime aboard the fleet, punishing mistakes by confining people in the Royal Scotsman's bilge tanks without toilet facilities and with food provided in buckets. At other wow. times, his crew I'm members just, were thrown overboard uh, while he filmed them. Well, the good news is at least you get to shower. David Mayo... A Sea Org member at the time later said, We tried not to think too hard about his behaviour. It was not rational much of the time, 
but to even consider such a thing was a discreditable thought, and you couldn't allow yourself to have any discreditable thoughts. One of the questions in the security check was, have you ever had any unkind thoughts about L. Ron Hubbard? And you could get into very serious trouble if you had. So you tried hard not to. I'm just imagining, like, the people being thrown overboard just swimming to, like, Greece, and it's like, <laughs> save us. I've made a terrible mistake. Oh, this just gets creepier. Really? Yeah. How? You'll see, in 1970, Lafayette was attended aboard ships by the children of Sea Org members. They were mainly young girls uh, dressed uh. in hot pants and halter tops who were responsible for running errands for him, such as lighting his cigars, dressing him, or relaying his verbal commands to members of the crew. Oh, God, please make it stop. So he has a harem of girls. And I say girls because they are not adults, they are girls. Oh, no. Oh, no. During the 1970s, Lafayette faced an increased number of legal threats. French prosecutors charged him... Is one of them pedophilia? Unfortunately not. French prosecutors charged him and the French Church of Scientology with fraud and customs violations in 72. He was advised that he was at risk of being extradited to France. He left the Sea Org fleet temporarily at the end of 1972, living incognito in Queens, New York. He returned to his flagship in September 1973, when the threat had abated. His health deteriorated significantly during this period. A chain smoker, he also suffered from bursitis and excessive weight, and had a prominent growth on his forehead. Sounds sexy. You don't need to be sexy when you can order the children of your followers to dress skimpy. Ugh. And dress you. And light your cigars. He suffered serious injuries in a motorcycle accident in 1973 and had a heart attack in 1975. In September 1978, he had a pulmonary embolism falling into a coma, but later recovered. He remained active in managing and developing Scientology, establishing the controversial Rehabilitation Project Force in 1974. However, the Sea Org's voyages were coming to an end. The Apollo was banned from several Spanish ports and was expelled from Curaco in October 1975. The Sea Org came to be suspected of being a CIA operation, leading to a riot Sorry, leading to a riot in Funchal, Madeira. Madeira? When the Madeira. Apo- yeah, Madeira, I was right. Like the cake, yay. Yep. When the Apollo docks yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's your point of reference. Yes. I love it. That's brilliant. Well, in this country, it's either cake or sherry, so... At the time, the Apollo Stars, a musical group founded by Lafayette and made up of entirely shipbound members of Sea Org, was offering offering free on-peer concerts in an attempt to promote Scientology, and the riot occurred at one of these events. (laughs) Lafayette decided to relocate back to the United States to establish a land base for the Sea Org in In October 1975, he moved into a hotel suite in Daytona Beach. The Fort Harrison Hotel in Clearwater, Florida was secretly acquired as the location for the land base. On December 5th, he and his wife Mary Sue moved into a condominium complex in nearby Dunedin. Their presence was meant to be a closely guarded secret, but was accidentally compromised the following month. He immediately left and moved to Georgetown in Washington, D.C., accompanied by a handful of aides and messengers, but not his wife. 
Six months later, following another security alert, he moved to another safe house in Culver City in California. Oh, wouldn't you be... Wouldn't it just be like brilliant if you were like disillusioned and you were just like, yeah, I'm just going to keep on calling in security alerts for this dude. Has to <laughs> oh, that would be good. I'm just imagining that every time it's also the same FBI agent just showing up. <laughs> he lived there for only about three months. His second son, Quentin, committed suicide a few weeks later in Las Vegas. Well, yeah, after you listen to who your father is. Throughout this period, Lafayette was heavily involved in directing the activities of the Guardian's office. He believed that Scientology was being attacked by an international Nazi conspiracy, which he termed Tenyaka Memorial. He believed he was doing so <laughs> through a network of drug companies, banks, and psychiatrists in a bid to take over the world. In 1973, he instigated the Snow White program and directed the GEO to remove negative reports about Scientology from government files and track down their sources. The Guardian's office was ordered to get all false and secret files on Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard that cannot be obtained legally by all possible lines of approach, including job penetration, janitor penetration, suitable guises and suitable guises utilising covers. The GEO carried out covert campaigns on his behalf, and he was kept informed of their operations, such as the theft of medical records from a hospital, harassment of psychiatrists, and infiltrations of organisations that had been critical of Scientology in the past. How the fuck have they gotten away with all this? I know, it's insane. Yeah. Members of the GEO infiltrated and burglarised numerous government organisations, including the US Department of Justice and the IRS. After two GEO agents were caught in the Washington, D.C. headquarters of the IRS, the FBI carried out simultaneous raids on their offices in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. They retrieved wiretrap equipment, burglary tools, and some 90,000 pages of incriminating documents. Despite this, Lafayette was not prosecuted. God! I'm, I'm just, at this point, just fuck this shit. Fuck everything about this shit. Yeah. His wife, Mary Sue, was indicted and subsequently convicted of conspiracy, and she was sent to a federal prison along with 10 other Scientologists. Holy shit! How many years did she get? I'm, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. After everything that happened, she's the one being sent to prison? Well, yeah, because he put her in charge of the Guardian's office so that she would take the fall. I hate this guy. How many years did she get? Okay, she was sentenced to four years. Uh, she she got out after a year, though. Oh, good. Well, still, I wouldn't want to do a year in federal fucking prison. No. For, for my pedophile husband. Yeah. In February 1978, a French court convicted Lafayette in absentia for obtaining money under false pretenses. He was sentenced to four years in prison and 35,000 francs, uh, equivalent of 7,000 US dollars, fine, which comes to 26,000 today. Considering how much he's making a year, though, it's, yeah, like, it's like any of pennies, these. It's um, pennies. It's like, you know, it, they call it the cost of doing business because it doesn't actually affect them. He went into hiding in April 1979, moving to an apartment in Hemet, California, where his only contact with the outside world was via 10 trusted messengers. He cut contact with everyone else, even his wife, who he saw for the last time in August 1979. Good riddance, dude. Paranoia. 
Yep. But is it paranoia? Because the government is out to get him. (laughs) For the first few years of the 1980s, he lived on the move, touring the Pacific Northwest in a recreational vehicle and living for a while in apartments in Newport Beach and Los Angeles. He used his time in hiding to write his first new works of science fiction for nearly 30 years, Battlefield Earth and Mission Earth, a 10-volume series. The books received mixed responses. Not how I pictured him writing it, I have to say. (laughs) He also wrote and composed music for three albums, which were produced by the Church of Scientology. The book soundtrack Space Jazz was released in 1982. (laughs) Space Jazz. Oh, God. He is really, like, ah. I might end the episode with some Space Jazz. Yeah, I think you definitely have to find some space jazz. In his absence, members of the Sea Org staged a takeover of the Church of Scientology and purged many veteran Scientologists. A young messenger, David Miskovich, became Scientology's de facto leader. Mary Sue Hubbard was forced to resign her position and her daughter Suzette became Miskovich's personal maid. Lafayette lived in a luxury bluebird motorhome on Whispering Winds, a 160-acre ranch near Creston, California. That is the best name ever. So he remained in deep hiding whilst living there, whilst controversy raged in the outside world about whether he was still alive or where he was. He spent his time writing and researching, according to a spokesperson, and pursuing photography and music, overseeing construction work, and checking on his animals. He repeatedly redesigned his property, spending millions of dollars remodeling the ranch house and building a quarter-mile racehorse track with an observation tower, which was never used. Why would he do that? Delusions of grandeur. Yep. If you have the money, why not? He was still closely involved in managing the Church of Scientology via secretly delivered orders and continued to receive large amounts of money, of which Forbes magazine estimated... At least two hundred million was gathered in Hubbard's name through nineteen eighty two. That's two hundred million 200- in nineteen eighty two. Holy fuck. And do you know what? He's so the type of person to be getting such a massive hard on for like you know, living in the desert and and outwitting the feds and communicating in secret order and all that shit. Oh my god. That's How seven, much is that in today's money? Seven hundred and thirty million in one year. Oh, oh, fuck me gently with it. Oh, did, can did I get just, that? Yeah, you just have to set up a cult. Oh, that would be easy after this. The problem is the pedophilia part. No, I don't think you have to be a pedophile. Not after hearing his life. Although it is quite, it it it, it is quite interesting that I wonder if um. I mean, it's a very out of the way way to go about having sex with children, but but <laughs> well, no, I'm thinking like you know because there's been other cult leaders who who were um, pedophiles had, were pedophiles, yeah, and then there's like there's been famous people as well, and I wonder if it's just a way for people to gain a cushion to get easy access. Mm, probably sure. Let's call it that. But no, that that does make a bit of sense, Han. It's like um, oh, what's the guy's name? The musician. Who turned oh, out to um, be a pedophile? Lost yeah, I can't think of his name, but Lost Prophets dude. Yeah, like he, a lot of what he did was convincing mothers fans, who yeah. were his fans to basically hand over their children. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's that cult-like personality of "you love me, so let me do this thing." Mm-hmm. So, and because I am, and because I'm not a normal person, because I am 
special, it doesn't, it's not a harmful thing. Yeah. It becomes non-harmful because I'm doing it. Lafayette suffered further ill health, including chronic pancreatitis, during his residence at Whispering Winds. And on January 17th, 1986, he suffered from a stroke and died a week later. Yay. His body was cremated and the ashes were scattered at sea. Scientology leaders announced that his body had become an impediment to his work and that he decided to drop his body to continue his research on another planet, having learned how to do without a body. Right. Yeah, he didn't die. He ascended into a higher being. Of course he did. That was what um, I um, listened to a really interesting podcast documentary series about Heaven's Gate recently. Ooh. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, it's like a 10-part series. Very, very well worth a listen to. Yeah. And um, and they they thought the same thing. They thought that they were having to shed their body to mm-hmm. go into space. Yeah. Yeah, but they were like full-on militia preppers. No, 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 not Heaven's Gate. No, Heaven, Heaven's Gate were like really peace-loving and weirdly insular insular yeah they basically they they i think towards the end because the cult ran for about 20 years and uh towards the end i think there were about 30 of them and they would live in the compound and they and they would go out to work but they would like their only social life and their only interaction is with the other cult members they didn't have any life outside outside the cult apart from their paid jobs yeah but but it was a very sort of like it was a weirdly hippy dippy thing i mean you can actually watch their their goodbye videos on youtube because they they were all committing suicide to ascend to the next level, and they were all really happy to be doing it. Mm-hmm. And it's a what? weird experience watching their goodbye videos. Very strange experience. Wait, Heaven, Heaven's Gate is the one with the bunk beds and the fact that they died like wearing all the same shit, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. No. So I I was um confusing it with the Kool Aid. Ah, uh, no, that's uh, Jonestown. Right. 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 John's. Yeah. 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 Now, I confuse the two all the time. So Heaven's Gate was the one where they all, like, died wearing new white clothes and everything. Yeah, they had white Nike trainers and black Nike tracksuits, and they all had the same haircut, and they all were, like, put under a purple shroud after they died and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Mm. I wonder if it's only a matter of time until Scientology does something similar. Well, I don't know. I mean... I yeah, mean, that, that's, like, in next week. I mean, any good cult... I mean, any, you know, you look at the people, you look at the people in, in Heaven's Gate and, you know, they weren't, the, the, they, the leaders weren't in it for sex. It was, it was a very honestly held belief by, by at least the, the dude who, who was the leader. Mm. Um, he didn't, you know, it wasn't a money-making enterprise. He truly believed what he was, what he was preaching and what he was saying. But then somebody like, or an entity like Scientology they don't give a fuck about the people. They don't give a fuck what they're saying. They just want to make money. Mm. So they're not going to start start doing apocalypse, apocalyptic stuff and suicide stuff because that just cuts off potential revenue for them. Yeah. You know, they if you can get it all they... and keep them alive, then why bother? Yeah, exactly. They they're in it for the money. They want the money. Yeah. So they so so that's why they'll never go the route of um, people committing suicide because a it would look really fucking bad for them. Um, but B, because it's not a financial, it's not a good good decision financially. You, you're you're cutting off your source of revenue, and why the fuck would you do that? Yeah, exactly. It's like um, churches who cut off specific sectors 
they want the money. That's that's why they do half the shit they do. That's why they offer half the services they offer. So there's um, I, I hadn't heard I hadn't heard of this guy. It just it came up on my Facebook feed. I don't even know who who it was who it was from. But it's some um, fairly famous evangelist preacher in in America, and he charges five thousand dollars for a front row seat at one of his services. Yeah, religion's crazy. Yep, religion is fascinating to me because it's such a major mind fuck. Yeah. It's such a major mindfuck, and it's so easily. I mean, there's so there's so many things about it. It's like to me, there is such a massive difference between having faith in a deity and then saying this book that was written by people two thousand years ago is what this omnipotent being wants us to be. And it's like, how fucking dare you speak for a fucking deity and decide that your deity is so fucking petty that he really gives a shit who we're fucking. Mm. Or who we are. Yeah, like, like it's a deity, the Judeo-Christian deity is such, is so human in his, in his pettiness. Which is kind of ironic, because look at, like, the Greek version of the deities. Mm-hmm. Look at that, and you see, like, how petty and human they are in a way. Yeah, but then but then the Greek deities, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I don't think the Greek deities were omnipotent, were they? They were powerful, but they weren't I mean, all powerful. And they, and they, they had were as very, close very to it as possible. But they had very human impulses and very human flaws. The Greek yeah, God. but they were close to being omnipotent as possible. I mean, they were uh, immortal. They could bring back the dead, start wars, end wars. Yeah, but they didn't know everything because you'd have them playing off against each other and certain gods putting plans into motion to go against other gods that that god didn't know about. So they weren't all-knowing, all-seeing kind of gods. I don't think they ever claimed to be all-knowing, all-seeing. No, but that's the Jude- but the Judeo-Christian god and the Islamic god, they are claimed to be all-knowing and all-seeing. Yeah, yeah. But it just becomes a head fuck when it's like, how can you really, like, aside from all the, like, you know, contradictions and ridiculousness and, like, if you if you remotely put a critical head on for five minutes, you could turn around and go, well, this shit's bull- this is all bullshit. But yeah. it's like, what happens if you're wrong? You do realise that Christians don't even make up like the the bulk of the world. So if you if your God is the right God, then that condemns billions of, of the people world. to hell purely from the accident of their geographic birth. Does that seem fucking fair to you? Oh, religion is not about fairness. Well, yes. No, but it just seems like to me, it's like the pure logic of the fact that if you're right, everyone else has to be wrong, which means everyone else is going to hell. And I cannot understand. I cannot would understand God you. would allow that? Yeah, I couldn't understand you being up for a deity who would allow that. Or think about the fact that if there is a God or a deity or whatever that allows um, for, you know, uh, this the concept of religion and everything... Well, think about what if their final message is literally the for- form of acceptance, like you accept everyone. That means that all religions that counter one another and just try to take over the concept of religion worldwide is basically the idea that God has failed. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't accept one another, then fuck it. Yeah. Like, what's what's the point of having 
seven billion, seven and a half billion people worldwide and just like fighting against one another for a concept that most people don't really care about in, in the long run. Like, of course, you believe in something, whether or not you believe in nothing, but still the idea that whatever, like, I'm not going to stand in front of a Christian person or a Muslim person as a like Jewish atheist like, I consider myself Jewish, but I'm an atheist. I'm more culturally Jewish than anything. And I'm not going to start fighting with them about what religion is right, because, frankly, I don't care. Like, as long as you don't hurt me, I really don't care what the fuck you do. You can pray on Saturday, you can pray on Sunday, you can pray on Friday. Like, But that's, but that's the, the, the issue, isn't it? Is that the religion is that people use religion as an excuse to... Yeah. Yeah. opinions on other people and that's where like that's why i say i have no problem with any one individual person's faith in any deity whatsoever because faith is a personal relationship with an invisible with an an, you know an imaginary friend but whatever but it is a personal relationship i have an issue with all religions because all religion is man-made and all religion is subjugating of somebody and all religion is unfair to somebody and yeah it's, it's, it's like, the one up yeah you are you're bringing in the concept of one upping one another mm-hmm. and it's and it also brings in the whole concept of well you know i feel like my god is the actual god and i don't really give a shit as long as i'm right mm-hmm. i don't actually give a shit if six billion people burn in hell as long as i go to heaven and i don't really give a shit about this world anyway because because i would rather put off having a decent life on the promise of going to paradise than actually try and fix the world that i live in but wouldn't the concept of you to begin with fucking like saying fuck you to everyone else upset your chance in heaven due to the fact that you literally say fuck you well i don't know because according to the judeo-christian god it's it's all about belief because as long as you believe and then say oops sorry you're golden i mean we we don't really we don't have that really in judaism the the concept of saying oops sorry yeah no i mean like the most the most disgusting vile pedophile serial killer in fed in fucking supermax in america who's about to be put to death can be like yeah except lord jesus christ i'm sorry he goes to fucking heaven but yes. a kid born in bangladesh doesn't Must i that, mean yeah yeah it's, it's just, stupid it's, fucked. it's 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 really stupid and and so gross and so all about div- div- division rather than unity well humanity is always created this drive for us against them that's how people thrived to begin with that's literally what drove people to create the greatest inventions in the world the us versus them Mm -hmm. i'm going to one-up you or i'm going to um or i'm going to destroy you that is how human humanity prevailed the us against them the only reason um just to sort of like go on a slight tangent from that the only reason that white people um became i'm going to use the term top dog i don't mean superior in that way but i mean like you know the fucking conquerors yeah. um is purely down to the fertile crescent 
Yeah. We had such a, because um, all across Europe, and, and I, read, I read an entire book on it, that was basically because we had so much crop and species diversity, we could branch out from subsistence farm, from subsistence living earlier, which enabled people to pick up, to not have to eat like, the food, so they could then use their brains to like invent shit. Yeah, the, the fact that you didn't have to put as much resources into improving your 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 food and your survival rate mm-hmm. the fact that you could just leave that to other people time, have time to do whatever the fuck you want basically yeah and it all goes and it all goes back to that it all goes back to that yeah 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 that's like that's a hundred percent true it's- so that was the life of Elron hubbard no on he's not he, no, he's still alive. He's just on another planet, Amy. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That was the Earth time of uh, there, L. There we Ron go. Um, despite the length of that, that that was a very brief version. Um, I had to like drop so many things and cut out stuff because it was so big. There, there's so much to this guy's story. So that genuinely, it's a taster. So if people want to learn more, go and read more because that there's so much more detail about him out there. And if you'd like to forget that he's a pedophile. <laughs> well, now, weirdly, when you first started talking to him and then you were talking about him and then you started talking about writing books, mm. I was wondering, and then I said, oh, I think I might know who it is. Yeah. Because I thought it was, and I can't think, it, this is this is going to be, this is top notch, you guys, because I can't remember the name of the author or the name of the book, but bear with me. There is a a really really famous right wing white supremacist book called it's called the Something Diaries the Taylor Diaries the Thompson Diaries something like that and it's all about these groups of young men who blow up the government and it's um, it was used by the Oklahoma bomber and stuff like that and I thought when you started talking that maybe it was him and then all of a sudden my brain went no hang on a minute oh Hubbard yeah obviously. <laughs> <laughs> This this was one of two. There was another subject I nearly went with, which, if you two are willing, because it is coming up soon, I would like to do this again with you for episode 50. And we will try and get Chris for that one as well. Sounds Wait. good. Well, guys, if people want to find you online, where can they do that? Uh, Addy, do you want to go first? You can find me on Twitter at D underscore Anhang, uh, A-N-H-A-N-G. Uh, you can find me on uh, Instagram... A D dot Anhang again, same A N H A N G. That's about it. You can find me on this show and see my voice development throughout the season. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that that's about it until Smorgasbord gets back, and then I'm going to destroy them as well. <laughs> and Han yourself, if people want to find you, where can they do that? Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Han Birch B U R C H. That's about it. That's about it, really. Cool. Well, if the listeners enjoy this episode, you can find us online as well. We have a Twitter account, which is at eccentric underscore earth. Our Instagram handle is the same. If you want to follow us on Facebook, you can go to www.facebook.com forward slash eccentric earth. All of our social media platforms are kept up to date with news for new episodes so that you won't miss the new ones as they come out. If you want to write in any suggestions for future episodes or to uh, get in contact with any reason, 
you, the Church of Scientology, we're talking to you now. Uh, email address is eccentricearth at outlook.com. And if Haley at well. Yes, Haley, if, if you want to drop Addy a message, you can do that through us. Or you have his social media now, so go wild. You can find us on all major podcast providers and on YouTube, so please make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. We're now also part of the Brit Podscene Network, which has dozens of amazing British podcasts, so go check them out and discover some great new shows to listen to. Well, thank you guys for, for coming on. It's this, this has been fun. Thank you for tolerating us. <laughs> <laughs> You're much better behaved than yeah, I thought I, you'd I, be. <laughs> I, I have... I have a list of uh, dick jokes and pedophile jokes, but I thought that we should like keep this an R rating and not XXX rating. <laughs> well, maybe you'll get to use some worse material in the 50th. Please have more when, blood. Please depends who the person blood. is. Please have more blood. Please have I, more I, blood. I really like the person for the 50th. It's going to be fun. Well, thank you everyone for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Bye. My beautiful home. Thank mm-hmm. you.